We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Sometimes to encounter silence, we must travel outside the recording studio to hear its rhythms and participate with it. When we do, we bring our basic recording devices to keep a record of that engagement, resulting in field recordings. These recordings all may vary in participants and content, surprising us in the variety of ways that silence speaks. This is the second part of a two-part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode, and then come back for this one. wonder if we could talk a little bit about the bodily wisdom that you kind of bring yeah. up and, and you wrote a book called awaken your senses which addresses some of that and and merton talks about so, sometimes um our illnesses can be yes. a form of protest against life sure and i wonder if you could speak to just listening to our bodies and what what that means and what that looks like well i think a real simple one is is uh when nominating season rolls around in our local congregation, and you know the nominating committee uh, is trying to fill slots that they have to fill, and you see you know, the head of the nominating committee coming towards you, do you rejoice in your body with that, or do you get upset to your stomach a little bit and feel queasy? Because it's like... Yeah. How am I going to... Your body's already telling you. You're getting tense. Here comes this person. Yeah. Oh, no. What are they going to ask me to do? Right. Instead of, uh, oh, there might be a wonderful opportunity coming. I mean, that, that you know, some people may respond. Finally, they're going to ask me to do something, and mm. I hope it's something I want to do. But it's, it is just the learning to pay attention in life situations about... Am I, not am I uncomfortable necessarily because that could be a sign that this is really important but if you are panicky if you're not uh, finding a sense of ease as you think about it as time goes on and your body aches or you're getting a cold or but i mean it it, we we, uh, especially americans and i speak of americans as because that's who I am. Yeah. I don't want to speak for others. But we are so focused on our heads and not on our bodies, except yeah. um, body image of go- going to go get fit or right. whatever. But our bodies are telling us stuff all the time. And we, we have lost, especially uh, Protestants, I think, more than other Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism have a lot more sensory input uh, in their worship services, and Protestants don't. And so we, we lose this idea, and it's a biblical idea, that our bodies are carriers of spiritual knowledge, mm. and to learn to pay attention to the signs that, that they're giving us at times. I mean, I get nervous every time I speak in public. That 
that doesn't mean I shouldn't. That means you're doing something that is important. Pay attention to the now, then, how to stay centered and how to give the message you feel called to give. And I really appreciate that note. As someone who has speaking anxiety, navigating for me, I mean, this for me goes back to silence and that place mm-hmm. of discernment and knowing for me what is what is anxiety that's a warning sign that this is not good and what is extreme nervousness that feels like anxiety mm-hmm. that is something I need to push through. Yes. And it's amazing the more I spend with my body checking in in those silent moments, yeah. the more I'm aware of oh my gosh, you know, my heart's beating so fast, but it's okay, you know, yeah. and this is something to push through. Or my heart's beating so fast and I need to leave this situation. So just that, yeah, that place of discernment. Our bodies are so wise. Mm-hmm. And learning to listen to them is such a lifelong practice. It is. And it's, it's so easy to forget as we, especially, um, you know, I think a, a a person who writes a book and then has to get out there and promote the book. And so, you know, your publisher wants you to travel and so forth. Um, and I just a few weeks ago did a four-day stint in Northern California with an event every day, which they were good. And I, I really enjoyed them, and I'm grateful for that opportunity. But I also knew that four was the limit, mm. you know, that... that there there could have been an opportunity to stay a few more days yeah. and do more. But it's like, my body will not, hand, you know, my body will start rebelling. Yeah. And then those events will go poorly. Right. Because I'll be tired. I'll be not in a good space. I won't have listened. I won't have eaten as well. Because mm-hmm. as a diabetic, I have to be real careful about how I eat and mm-hmm. how much rest I get. Uh, so... To learn those lessons uh, earlier, I wish I had learned them earlier. And so that's, in some of my writings, those those are, I, I write lessons and try not to be preachy, but about stuff I wish I didn't know earlier <laughs> that would have really helped me out. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and so that's the only reason I can write about panic attacks and stuff is because those were horrible times in my life. And I think in, uh, there's a certain genetic disposition to them in our family Mm -hmm. but if I'd have known more I could have handled them better and Mm -hmm. and uh, moved through and and seen the signs that my body was giving me earlier Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and that's not to I mean I know both of us are not dismissing the reality Uh, of mental health issues and the importance and significance of that and it's not to say that purely listening to everything our body says means we'll be healed of anything Um, because you know those are realities that that exist in all of our lives but I would have asked for help sooner yeah right I'd have gotten good meds sooner yep and I'm still on those meds yep you know and uh, you know they're lifesaver and and so yes yeah but you know I was just toughing it through right instead of getting help Right, right. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is the stigma around yes. these things that I'm so blessed to be in the UCC church and working with a church that's striving to be just so welcoming and inclusive of 
mental illness and ending, ending the stigma of, of mental illness. Well, if you just prayed harder and believed more, <laughs> you would need a therapist, you know? Right. It's like, well, sorry, but that's just BS. Right, right, right. <laughs> Quaker plain speech. Yeah. <laughs> kind, of, kind of like pray the gay away. That's, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, sure. Right. <laughs> Going back to your latest book, Beauty, Truth, Life, and Love, I want to ask what was the most difficult and what was the easiest to write about? In, in terms of those four essentials. Yeah. Well, learning those four, their role in my life was the hardest part about writing it because I hadn't realized. Uh, you know, I'd written Sacred Compass, and uh, I, I'm happy. I think it's, it's a fine book. It deals with discernment, also deals with when it feels like we've, we've lost our way. But I really wanted to explore in my own life so what's the difference between the times where uh, things really seem to be, I seem to be in connection with God, with my family, with uh, the job I was in, and w- where were the times that there's, <laughs> things weren't firing on all four cylinders now, <laughs> though I grew up in the V8 era. <laughs> you know, what was missing? And and I realized that, you know, Congregations and faith communities rarely talk about the role of beauty, uh, truth, and the way I talk about it in this book, life and love, in the way that uh, impact our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we may talk about big spiritual truth or biblical truth, or uh, yeah, the greatest of these is love, but it, again, in an abstract fashion, instead of thinking how these things bring life to us. The hardest part in the actual writing was to determine what stories I could tell where I failed. Mm. And I, I speak of of one time where I stayed too long in a position. because And it had ceased to be life-giving for me and the organization. But that's not something we're much taught. But it was hard to be that, it's hard to be that revelatory about it and, and own... Uh, <laughs> Uh, my own spiritual tripping and falling and having to get back up and brush my knees off. Mm. It was also hard in some ways to write, uh, uh, even though it was beautiful, but about uh, being with my mother as she passed in the love chapter. Because that, that was just a couple of years ago, so it's still, mm. you know, I write about both my parents in this book. Uh, and they both, they passed within eight weeks of each other two years ago. Wow. And so it's still kind of raw, but uh, the easiest part was writing the book as a whole because I really believe in that, this concept that if we could teach, if congregations would empower more of their people to look for beauty, truth, life, and love in every aspect of their life, and again, not 25% truth or (laughs) <laughs> or you know, thirty percent love and fifteen percent. But to find that in the things that we're called to do, and in our relationships, and in our worship together, how are those things all present in everything we do in our lives? Uh, then we find them more soul satisfying, mm-hmm. and that's a message that was easy to write because I found it true in my own life and helpful in my own life. Yeah, yeah. I loved in the life chapter you talked a lot about 
adventure as much as ordinary life and everyday life. And I think, I love the way that you, you essentially wove silence into each section yeah. and the importance of ordinariness and simplicity and silence. I really appreciated that. Thanks. So I have a few more questions. One thing I do want to address um, is something, a few questions that we often ask. We often talk about how many people have difficult experiences of mm-hmm. silence and what we discuss as toxic silence or toxic silencing. Yeah. The silence of oppression, of rejection, of prejudice, of not yep. being heard. And I wonder if this has been a part of your story and how you've been able to discern times of when silence becomes toxic, whether it's a, a means to not do something. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a tough one because there there certainly are the shut-up mm-hmm. kind of moments, be quiet, uh, keep it in, tough tough it through, both right. individually, um, you know, and I think that, that those those are horribly toxic and harmful to us. And also as a society uh, and as a religious um, society, as um, denominations or congregations, we always try to project you know, a certain wholeness and our best side. Mm. And uh, at times, uh, we don't tell the whole truth. This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. And so, for example, our congregation, uh, little congregation, uh, here on the southwest side of uh, Marion County, Indiana, um, we just completed a study of Quakers in Indian boarding schools. Mm. And for years, Quakers have had this uh, wonderful image of not being as harsh towards Native Americans as others. Mm Mm-hmm. And and we have we have liked that image and promoted it and talked it up among ourselves. But when we look at the impact that that the Quaker run uh, Native American boarding schools had with depriving those children of their culture, cutting their hair, giving them Quaker names, it's horrible. Yeah. And that's a silence that went on way too long. Yeah. And it was toxic. It was toxic to our relationships with natives, Native Americans and to our own souls. And so uh, we uh, Quakers are beginning to face that and to say that. And the same with uh, uh, relationships with uh, people of color. Mm. Uh, especially, you know, Quakers had this uh, public image of all being abolitionists. We were not. Mm. And uh, there's a wonderful book uh, called uh, Fit for Freedom, Not for Friendship about the the troubled 
history of the Society of Friends with people of color that, yes, uh, many Quakers work for uh, freedom and the end of slavery, but there were meeting houses where blacks were not welcomed or had special seating areas where they had to be. And so there was, they were fit for freedom, but not our friendship. Mm. And to speak about the systemic racism within the Religious Society of Friends is, is something that we've been confronting and trying to break that silence. Um, and so we, we have to speak uh, truth. And so, uh, but even that, I would say, has to come out of a centered silence. Mm. Because um, it, it is very easy to get uh, angry. It is very easy to... Uh, place blame. It is very easy to assign blame, and this is not to absolve, but to assign blame and uh, bad motives to people who in earlier generations were were doing the best they could, but also constrained by uh, their society at mm -hmm. the time. You know, William Penn may have been ahead of his, his four, uh, most of the people in English society, of his time and how he dealt with Native Americans in, in early Pennsylvania, but he was still a product of his time and he didn't handle it perfectly. Yeah. So, how do we acknowledge that and and take ownership of it? So, so we need to speak out about what we can and name you know speak truth, but I do think it needs to be a centered truth, uh, rooted in spiritual life. Uh, otherwise, it is uh, it can too easily become a political harangue, or uh, very judgmental, mm -hmm. and uh, and so I don't urge victims to be silent. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't urge people in pain to be silent about their pain. That's not the kind of silence I write about or talk about. I mean, I'm talking about a centered soul silence. Yeah. Uh, not keeping quiet, per se, but keeping quietude mm. in our souls. I, and I really appreciate you addressing that rewritten history of Quakers and, and that oppression, because it is not often presented like yeah. that. Um, the history of Quakers is often not presented like that. I have a friend, uh, Tim Condor, who talks about how you can't do justice work today in America without understanding the contamination of theology. Yes. And it's just amazing how it's embedded, um, this contamination is just embedded in so many different things in all, all denominations, all areas of Christianity. Yeah. So. And, and, well, I think some was done out of, uh, out of malice. Mm. I don't think all of it was. I think there were just there were many people with good intentions, mm -hmm. but their good intentions were rated, uh, rooted in the theology and societal understandings of their time, and so we have to know that, so we can avoid. And, and so yesterday, one of the things we did, speaking of queries, there were four queries that were written about uh, Quakers and Native. Americans, oh, and yeah. and including okay. Now that we know the history, mm. what are we going to do? And the last one was okay. So, 
uh, how do we move forward not making the mistakes mm. that our Quaker forefathers and foremothers did? How be spiritually centered so that we don't do those same sort of things? Mm-hmm. And of course, we we still continue to do that right. in, at certain levels. No, we don't have any forced boarding schools or anything, but what are other ways that we uh, oppress um, people who are other than us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Do you have a silence hero, a person famous, dead or alive, not famous, who embodies the beauty and promise of silence? I suppose there are probably two. One I mentioned earlier, uh, T. Canby Jones, my college professor and, mm. and mentor. He was uh, he was humorous. He was deep, he was prophetic, and he was grounded in silence. And you could just just see. I mean, he had the most delightful giggle and hmm. craziest sense of humor. And he could he had a shock of white hair that, <laughs> if he had a beard, he'd have looked like Charlton Heston and Moses. He has Moses <laughs> with this. He could get all prophetic, but yeah. it was it was always centered. And my other is is I would say his hero, his mentor, Thomas Kelly, mm. who he studied under when he was uh, a young man. And Kelly's uh, uh, writings in A Testament of Devotion are something I return to again and again, which is call to interior silence and nurture. And he was a fascinating individual at many levels, and one was this wonderful book that has come out in the uh, mid-40s, has never been out of print, and is a a spiritual classic, and he never saw it. Mm. He died Hmm. before it happened. Yeah. And so uh, to live a life of giving like that, an offering that continues to go on of, of silence, that continues 70, almost 80 years later, is just... Right. And yet is still contemporary and fresh. Mm-hmm. I have two more questions. Sure. One is if someone were just were new to your work yeah. uh, and just beginning um, to, or just hearing you for the first time, rather, on the podcast, where might you suggest they begin? I suppose first, if they were interest, more interested in learning more about Quakerism. Is Quakerism, is that what you say? Quaker. Being yeah, Quaker? Quaker. Quakerism, Quaker. the Quaker way. The Quaker way, okay. <laughs> Ism sounds a little dogmatic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like the Quaker way. Okay, the Quaker way. If someone were interested in learning more about the Quaker way, uh-huh. and then if someone were more interested in learning about silence. Well, I'd probably have the same answer to both. I think Holy okay. Silence is a good uh, grounding text, uh, both about... Uh, the Quaker practice of silence and how also how we can learn to carry it in our daily lives, but but also gives uh, a good introductory uh, sort of look at at the Quaker way, not not in in toto, but certainly silence. A holy silence book shows how silence influences all aspects of. Uh, Quaker faith and practice, Mm -hmm. including how we develop the testimonies of uh, peace and simplicity and equality and how 
how silence informs those even t today. Mm -hmm. And finally, I wonder if you wouldn't mind reading something from your latest book, Beauty, Truth, Life, and Love. I'd be happy to. Here's a, a brief section from the beauty chapter. The important thing for me about beauty is that it's not just about appreciating beauty for beauty's sake. No, rather, beauty points us to what is truly beautiful, the face of our loving God, even when we're not aware of it. God is in all beauty, maybe not the same extent in each piece of beauty, human-made or natural, we encounter, but certainly there in some measure. And if we look for that divine presence, we can find it. As Jim Krogert's song, Why Do We Hunger for Beauty, ask, Frost on the window, never the same. So many patterns fit in the frame, captured in motion, frozen in flame, and in the patterns, is there a name? And in the patterns, is there a name? Indeed, there is, if we're looking for it, that is. Looking for that name is not hard to do if we remember that we were created for wonder. As children, we didn't need to be reminded of that. The whole world was filled with wonder. Everything around us was amazing. The magic of Christmas and surprise of birthday presents. The amazement of blue skies with fluffy, towering clouds forming rabbits, faces, and more. The astonishing first taste of cotton candy at the county fair. Wonders all around us to be experienced and enjoyed. Anne Lamott reminds us of that when she says, Try walking around with a child who's going, Wow, wow, look at that dirty dog. Look at that burned down house. Look at that red sky, and the child points, and you look, and you see, and you start going, Wow, look at that huge, crazy hedge. Look at that teeny little baby. Look at the scary, dark cloud. I think this is how we are supposed to be in the world, present and in awe. When's the last time you experienced wonder? A wonder that thrilled you to your very core, Wonder that comes from God and is recognized as such. Children are good at recognizing God. As the poet Hafiz reminds us, every child has known God, not the God of names, not the God of don'ts, not the God who ever does anything weird, but the God who knows only four words and keeps repeating them saying, Come dance with me. Come dance. So how do we look for God in all beauty? How do we encounter a beauty that makes us fully present in awe and seeing the presence of God? We begin by recovering a childlike sense that we are alive in a world of wonder and beauty and God. Not the God of don'ts, but the God who takes us by the hand and says, Come dance with me. The God who created all beauty and says, Take and eat. Mm, that makes me want to say amen. Brent, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I really enjoyed our time together. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We are Encountering Silence. 
I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. <laughs>